Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, as always, Chris Chinchilla. Hope everybody is well. This week I have an interview with John Edvald of Garden, a cloud-native automation platform, actually based here in Berlin, quite small and early stage, but uh, an interesting space nonetheless. Hope you will uh, hold on through my links for that. This will be the last few episodes of the Weekly Week before I change things a little bit. I think I'm going to have two more shows after this, and I'm going to change the format a little bit. So watch and listen and read to this space for updates there. But first, here are my links of the week. All right. So first on Computer World, Greg Kaiser Google to cut off other Chromium-based browsers from access to services such as Sync. I also saw some other stories about this um, coming out today, especially in the Linux world. Um, and what this means, so Google Chrome, as you can see from the big icon here, if you're looking at the video, um, is actually based on an open source project called Chromium. And other Chromium-based browsers are Brave, Edge, I think Opera now, Actually, basically anything apart from Firefox and Safari. Uh, and up until this point, they, they've leveraged a lot of frameworks and APIs. Uh, and Google doesn't necessarily have an issue with those, but it has an issue with oh dear, getting ads popping up all over the place. Um, it has an issue with people using Google-specific APIs. And you can see here like Chrome Sync, Click to Cool, and a few other things. And they're going to shut off access to those. I would actually imagine that the sync one is probably the one that will cause people the most issue. Um, I know Brave spent a long time making a sync mechanism that worked. And I was always wondering if they maybe just ended up using the uh, Google one instead. I'm not 100% sure about that. I hope that's not true. But it's hard to say. So from March the 15th, any of these private Chrome APIs will be blocked. And yeah, I think this specifically uh, affects a lot of the... Linux community and uh, people who want to use Chromium with a bit of Google magic, but not a lot of the Google magic. So we'll see what happens there. Um, and it's also kind of an interesting precedent for other open source projects that maybe have a similar relationship with the better known uh, upstream downstream projects. Next, somewhat related. This is actually on Six Colors by Jason Snell. Uh, Safari 14 added web extension support. So web extension being a somewhat standard way of writing extensions for Chromium-based browsers and I think also Firefox and also Safari since Safari version 14. So why have people not really made that many extensions, which I can attest to? Um, and so a few have made it. Uh, PocketTube, OneTab, which is quite a popular um, extension and a few others, but not that many. Uh, beyond 20, so that's actually one I use when I'm doing D&D uh, &D live streams. Um, people said they're not going to bother. Um, firstly, because just because it supports those extent, the, the framework doesn't mean that the APIs it needs are there. Uh, and he actually says, the developer of that particular extension even says that Microsoft have contacted him about making a version for Edge, and he hasn't done that either. And there's also things like I would imagine that even if a web extensions uh, framework is supported, you still have to wrap a Safari extension in um, an Xcode project. And of course, not every developer has access to a Mac and Xcode. So yeah, I've actually been thinking about this myself because there's a couple of open source Chrome extensions. I've thought, oh, maybe I could convert them. Um, and of course I could. But uh, yeah, it's not as easy as it may initially seem just because the uh, web extensions API is supported. It doesn't necessarily mean everything that these extensions use is supported. So, uh, yeah, if, any, if anyone's tried, I'd be quite interested to know um, if any of you have, have tried to create Safari extensions and what the experience is like. And would this help you at all? Not really help at all? And are the other negatives actually outweigh this positive? Another one in the open source-ish world. This was has been relatively large news. I actually attended quite a good webinar on the subject yesterday as well. So this is from Stephen J. Vaughan Nichols on ZDNet, Elastic, 
changing the open source license to monetize cloud service use. Companies like Elastic and Mongo have been at the forefront of this battle against AWS uh, because most of them make their money from cloud-based hosting of their services. And when AWS just come along and others, but AWS is one of the, the worst in this regard, and take their business, how can they keep maintaining the open source project? And equally, Amazon has also forked versions of uh, these projects before and then just kept their own going. And sometimes it's kind of been better. Sometimes Amazon and AWS have more engineers than the actual original companies. So, yeah. Uh, And I did see quite a good webinar on this from CoreLogix yesterday. So you can also have a look on their website to find that. Quite an in-depth discussion about it. And this has been the source of much controversy in the open source community. So now... Elastic have created another new license, and I think they had one before, and so did Mongo. This is called the server-side public license and the Elastic license. Um, And a lot of people use (laughs) Elastic and the various uh, projects they maintain, Um, and they constantly say that it doesn't really have any impact on many people. It only really has an impact on people who then try to monetize their services through that. Um, So in this particular instance, the Amazon Elasticsearch service is not particularly hiding things there. Uh, And and various others as well, also on Azure and Google Cloud. Um, But in the interesting difference there is often it's Elastic providing those services and there's some kind of option there. Whereas AWS has a tendency to just kind of do it and not really work in collaboration. So this will be an ongoing saga. I, I think a lot of these companies are these sort of older quote-unquote open source companies are struggling a little bit with this and don't really always know what to do Um, and sometimes the open source community reacts badly the commercial community reacts badly pretty much to whatever they do so it's hard for them to really win or lose but they're still expected to keep um, maintaining the open source project so what do you do it's interesting uh interesting constant problem that will probably only get worse as we move forward so yeah, any thoughts on that, I'd like to like to hear from you. So christianchiller.com and you can find some contact details there or just leave a comment wherever you saw, heard or read this uh, newsletter. Another open source article, another following of topics I've been covering for some time. This was an Ars Technica from Samuel Axon but was also quite widely reported. Uh, Ubuntu is running on M1 Max. Uh, from Corellium or Sorellium, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. This is actually a company that had some history with Apple. Um, they also made an iOS security testing tool and Apple sued them. <laughs> so I don't think it will happen in this case. But they obviously have um, quite a history of trying to work with Apple hardware and make different things happen with it. So the caveat here is a lot of the uh, drivers are not supported for some of the various hardware components because... Apple is never going to open source those, so what do you do about them? But still, it works at a basic level. Uh, it'd be quite interesting to to know where this goes from there. Um, and that is basically about it. It's on GitHub right now, so you can go and try and download the kernel and do what you like from there and see what happens. It's definitely something you want to just do on a USB stick for uh for kicks and giggles not really for running any production work but uh we'll see what happens from now on and finally my and finally section this is actually from a couple of years ago um this is on the playlist from the playlist staff apparently um but this has come up in one of my film watching groups and i'm a huge fan of most of john carpenter's work not all of it so here's a great uh, article about the a full retrospective of some of his films, including quite a few I'd never heard of, which was interesting to hear. I also highly recommend his soundtracks. He has some great soundtracks, and he actually just released a new album late last year, um, and I think he's in his 80s. Uh, it's actually very, very nice, focused music for writing to. I highly recommend it. So if you want some introductions to John Carpenter from 1974 all the way down to, I think his last film was 2010? Um and then he gave up because that film was not very well received. Uh, and he definitely had his heyday in the kind of 80s, I think. Um, yeah. But uh, have, a, have a work your way through some of those. Uh, most of them are available on common streaming services. Not everything, but most. And some of my favorites, I actually, you can, if you're watching the, the video version, you can now see I'm highlighting on Assault and Precinct 13. I love that film. It's a kind of wonderfully dark film where just something happens and it's never really explained why, which I kind of like. 
And that was my links for the week. Now here's my interview with John Edvald of Garden. Enjoy. Sure. Um, my name is Jon, I'm, uh, which is Icelandic for John. Uh, I'm one of the founders and the CEO of Garden. Um, and uh, so I'm an engineer by background and by trade, but um, been in like various manage- management roles over the last few years. Um, Garden is my second startup. Um, back in 2007, started a different company out of Iceland with a different group, but um, doing a different sort of a thing like natural language processing, uh, an- analyzing online discussion. Um, ran that for, a f- for about five years. There was a CTO, not the CEO. So that's a new hat for me. Um, but um, uh yeah, went, I'd say, fairly well. Uh, was acquired by a company called Jive Software, um, who, uh, yeah, um, we kind of, we joined uh, when they were uh, still rising and they've they've since uh, hit on harder times. Um, and that actually, um, so that was a great experience for me, um, both, you know, going from a small Icelandic startup, uh, joining a, at the time, 600-person uh uh, public U.S. company, like big enterprise B2B operation. So um, learned a lot of things about how that whole thing works, um, you know, the sales side of things, and um, uh, and also learned how not to go from, uh, uh, what was it at the time, I think a 13-year-old Java monolith to uh, <laughs> the brave new world of what was what was then commonly referred to as SOA or service-oriented architectures. And now, yeah, 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 yeah. So now, now like, you know, what, what basically we refer to as microservices today. Um, also, cloud was, you know, it wasn't really a thing when that company started and they were always kind of on the fence. They ran their own data centers. So they were like, you know, do we... Do we, uh, you know, for these like big uh, Fortune 500 enterprise clients, like are they comfortable with being in the cloud? Um, um, that's all changed a lot since then. So now that that seems like a no brainer. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, so um, that's kind of where I started to get really interested in um, in the challenges of developing micro- microservices, distributed systems in general. Um, ahead of that, like, you know, at my startup, like in the early days, we ran servers out of a cabinet at the office. We did have a good internet connection, uh, uh, you know, first at the university and then in this innovation center. And, um, uh, so things have changed a lot, uh, in the years since I first started doing, you know, full time professionally, uh, dropped out of university to start, start, start a company. I'm typical that way. <laughs> And you're the, the the fifth Icelandic person I've met in in Berlin. <laughs> there's there's quite a lot of us here. Um, so th- 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 three of us here at Garden uh, on the founding team. We're just maybe yes, some of the others. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, no. I, th- I think there's probably like a thousand Icelandic people oh, wow. in Berlin. I think it's it's a very common. You know, Iceland is a very small country. It's like yeah. 330,000 people, yeah. I think, uh, at the moment, and. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so Berlin is a kind of a good step up. It's a cheaper place to live. I see lots of artists <laughs> moving here, more and more in tech. Um, you know, uh, yeah. uh, my friends over at uh, Clang Games. I don't know if, if those are some of the people that you know. No, but I would, I would, I would confirm that. I mean, not wanting to go too far down that path, but when I mm-hmm. first got here in 2015, even there was not really proper tech it was always like e-commerce and b2b tech and stuff like that and then very rapidly became i think i worked for one of the very few proper tech companies (laughs) and now there's loads (laughs) i don't know how you're qualifying that but i think i know what you mean Uh, yeah (laughs) i guess tech is a kind of a vague term these days so exactly exactly i i know what i mean i don't like it when tech companies call well when companies call themselves a tech company like no, you're just using technology. But I would consider right. Garden a tech company. We, and we haven't actually spoken mm. about what it is you do yet. So what is yeah. Garden doing? Yes, I'm kind of meandering towards that uh, part of the story. <laughs> so um, so Garden, um, we uh, help companies um, with the challenges around developing distributed systems, microservices, 
specifically focusing on um, cloud native, um, i.e. Kubernetes applications today. So working with containers and uh, deploying on Kubernetes. Um, but um, so the way it came to be, um, so previously I was uh, VP of engineering at uh, Clue here in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we at the time, like somewhere between 50 and 60 people. When I joined, it was actually with the intent of working with a data science team. And then we realized, actually, there's barely a backend engineering team. And yet, you know, we had a million and something daily active users and lots yeah. of critical data. Um, and so I took that on, uh, started to grow a team around uh, around that and um, and went f- through the transition uh, from you know, just simple Node.js Heroku backends um, uh, into containers brief stop at Docker cloud before we just kind of uh, uh, came to understand that they hadn't, they had stopped developing it and Kubernetes was managed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they didn't really tell us. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, I think, um, uh, but you know, that, that was kind of the hard part of the transition. And then we moved on to Kubernetes and getting it working, deployed, running on Kubernetes, uh, you know, that was really the least of our problems. What, so we kind of uh, quickly fell into the category of what's now commonly known as day two problems. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was starting to slow us down um, in terms of just the orchestration for the, the development process, getting development environments up and running, running tests across multiple services. So um, I set about um, first looking for and actually continuously looking for solutions to that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, while, you know, and I didn't find any and, uh, and it turns out they just didn't really exist, not in the mm-hmm. form that, uh, I, I was hoping for. Um, so I kind of cobbled together some internal tooling and, and had lots of conversations with, um, other CTOs and people kind of in the whole DevOps realm, everybody doing much the same, just kind of building their own bespoke tooling to solve yeah. these problems. And, um, and, um, you know, with Kubernetes manifesting as kind of a good foundational layer, um, I started having conversations with my now co-founders and um, we decided now is the time where we can actually make a product to solve this such that, you know, teams big and small don't have to spend their time solving the same problem separately all, o- all over the world. And um, um you know, seeing as every, almost every company now is a tech company to some degree. Like, you know, once you go past like, you know, the Speti scale of a company, like, you know, you, you do have to have some tech uh, involved and, uh, um, and, uh, and we, yeah, I just really felt that surely now that we've kind of settled on some patterns that we, you know, as a, as an industry think makes sense, we have some foundational technologies that, that we can build on top of. We shouldn't all be separately solving the same soft problems mm-hmm. all over again, yeah. um, because the the cost of not doing so, um, and he, like you know, one of one of um, our investors is the CTO of Eventbrite, um, and he he was estimating before they embarked internally on this, you know, 10, 10 person team working on their dev tooling, creating their own kind of uh, internal development platform. That they their developers were wasting 20 25 percent of their time um, either just waiting um, reconfiguring and configuring things over and over <laughs> again for different contexts managing their own development environments yep. um, and that's like that's more than a day every week out of every developer's lives who is involved in it and if you just yep. do the back back of the napkin there that's I, a I actually, huge amount um, of waste. One of the things I do is a one live stream I have is where I look at the developer experience of developer tools and mm-hmm. the amount of time I waste on that stream. Um, uh, second is NPM installs. And first <laughs> is getting Kubernetes clusters to start. <laughs> just, I think I spent about 20 minutes on one stream waiting for a Kubernetes cluster to start. And I mean, yeah. I, this was on my local laptop, of course, so not really an optimal kind of setup, but still it's just like, this is not fun watching either. Anyway, that's uh, <laughs> this is, no. I mean, uh, that's that's exactly yeah. the problem space. Um, so, and, I, I yeah. actually think in order to understand Garden a bit more, it might be useful to look at some of the features um, because this kind of space sometimes we, we mm-hmm. say it, and and people have a different understanding of what it might mean. 
So the three main feature areas, I think three? Yeah. I see you have um, remote development, integration mm-hmm. tests, and that's somewhat mm-hmm. um, standard, but let's just go into that a little bit. Is that integration mm-hmm. tests, uh, is that running on, on Garden or is that you just trigger them running elsewhere? What's the case there? So um, so the way that it works, so Garden is, um, it's, it's, you, can do, you can describe it as a hybrid between a development tool and an mm-hmm. automation tool. So yeah. uh, an automation tool in a sense, you know, um, similar to what you would set up as a CI pipeline, yeah. describing all the different steps in terms of building, deploying, testing. Uh, uh, and then we take that and you can actually run the run garden both on both sides, like on the CI side or the CD side, yeah, as well should, as locally. I should probably finish the paragraph. I didn't. And then I... Oh, yeah, of, okay, sure. And, and no, 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 I, I, it was my fault. And do it all <laughs> from a remote development cluster, no more Docker mm-hmm. or Kubernetes on your laptop. So you're actually... Yes. Uh, and is there some kind of IDE extension or there will be or, or something like that? We thought about that. But um, so that's, you know, we have to... Making those choices, we think that's an interesting notion, mm. but um, we also that's one of the areas where we don't really want to be too opinionated. Okay, um, we could certainly imagine having a VS Code extension that kind of integrates neatly with Garden, and mm. for everybody using VS Code, it's a value add. But we certainly don't want to pin you to a specific yeah. development environment. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, but yeah, so kind of. Um, uh, describing what what it is that it does, um, basically you you have a CLI tool. You mm-hmm. run commands like garden deploy, garden test, garden test this particular module, um, and you the way you configure it, you have a little bit of configuration next to each part of your stack. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have you know various different services. We actually have we have one uh, one user, uh, a bank in the UK. Uh, they have one project with 250 different modules and they can then deploy and test all of that in, in one go. Mm-hmm. And Garden will compile that all into a dependency graph. You have everything declared what it depends yeah. on. And that means every time you run, say, Garden Deploy or Garden Test, we figure out what has actually changed, what needs to be retested, redeployed. Um, and you can do that from your CI pipeline or while you're developing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, in both cases, uh, generally, you can actually run it like with a local Kubernetes or local Docker. Yeah. Some people, some people do that, and for some, that's fine. Maybe at a certain Especially small scale or, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But you know, we, we we like to focus on uh, companies with somewhat more complex problems um, and larger environments, or some companies like aren't even allowed to you know run Docker yeah. on your machines. So we interface, basically, we just through the Kubernetes API, mm-hmm. do the builds. We do the builds in cluster um, and uh, use a registry as a cache mm-hmm. and um, uh, for, for the built images. And the testing also happens in the cluster. So okay. you deploy your project into a namespace. And then the tests, whether they're unit tests or something else, they run within that same namespace. And the benefit then is... Um, that you don't have to do like mocking or stubbing, uh, except in some, some small, you know, in certain cases, you may have slight variations between production and development and things like that. But um, the idea is that you can actually write integration and end-to-end tests. Uh, you can use whatever tools like, you know, we see Cypress being used, for example. Um, and then that just runs within the cluster in a production-like environment. And then you can... Like really, you know, a lot of people are talking about testing and production, which I think is also fine. Not certainly not mutually exclusive, um, but there's a lot of a lot of things that you just have to be sure that this works before you try and push the production. Yeah. So Garden makes that a lot easier. It's interesting because, in a strange kind of way, it reminds me of some older ways that we used to develop, but. And this is actually often the problem I found with Kubernetes is it's like reinventing the old in a more complicated way. Sometimes it feels like <laughs> like it actually feels like the way back in the day when I first started doing development myself and it was mostly lamp stacks and getting that running on a local machine was often problematic and we ended up with things like Vagrant and stuff like that. 
and you would sometimes connect to remote services to do that <laughs> and sometimes on production um, yeah. it, it bizarrely feels a little bit similar strangely in some ways but um, obviously it's it's torn up torn down reproducible etc it's a little different but um, yeah yeah no i think like like technological evolution much like any other evolution um it doesn't just go like straight shot in the right direction it's always this like back and forth and really like the way things evolve is like a spiral between you know like you know you 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 start lamenting all the all the drawbacks of having a monolith and then you go like everything should be microservices and then you know mm. you kind of overdo it and then go ah, actually i want my monolith back and, you know, and it's like, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I wish I were in a relationship, but no, no, I want to be single again. And, you know, it's like, you're always this tug of war with yourself. And, um, I'm actually, I'm quite pleased in my relationship. I don't know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> no, uh, I've, been, I've been more generally, I've been married for 12 years. I've been more generally. So, okay. Let's, 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 let's get off that subject before we go down. Yeah, yeah. Pause. And then the QA and code review, actually, this is something that a few more platforms are also doing. Um, mm-hmm. I think GitLab, yeah. there's actually another Berlin startup that does something similar um, mm-hmm. that every time you create a PR or a merge request, you get an ephemeral um, mm-hmm. preview environment, yeah. uh, much like production or as much as like production as you want it to be. And people can do sort of real world tests. Um, yeah, is there anything, anything particularly specific or special with Gardner there? Or is it much like some of the other offerings there in that case? I mean, so these are all kind of use cases of the same general core principle, which is that um, you're able to spin up these production-like environments um, as you work. So uh, you can do that while you're just iterating on your code, um, and then you you know you commit and push to Git, and then an environment is set up there where uh, you know the integration test can run for sure and but also it's the same sort of environment that you had during development that is then very similar to you know it, you're basically not it reduces the uh, instances of you know why does this work locally and not in ci hmm. because you're actually using the same configuration yep. and then um you can attach you know you you can either do it yourself with so Garden Core is a CLI tool. You can run it from your mm-hmm. CI pipelines to spin up these environments and keep them alive while the PR is open. Um, Garden Enterprise is, is a commercial product. I'm not going to go all salesy here, but that, you know. I was, prov- was going to get to those next, so you're leading yeah. me in nicely. So, yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, but that's, you know, uh, that that has direct integration with um, GitHub and GitLab, so it can yeah. spin up these environments and maintain the for the lifecycle of a PR, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And then the use case being that, you know, your colleagues who are reviewing the PR, uh, who are doing the testing, your QA folks, um, they can, they get an environment that is mm-hmm. as similar to production as is viable for these ad hoc ephemeral environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so basically what these use cases that you list, uh, went through there, um, they are all use cases of essentially the same thing. It's not like we have specific features for QA um, it's more to do yeah. with exposing these types of environments to all these different stakeholders. Yeah, and, and the ability, I suppose, is, I did see something here about mobile and stuff like that, which has often been notoriously difficult to, to test. So being able to do that in a realistic-ish environment is, is a big positive. Um, exactly. Just drilling a bit more into these, the two additions and some of the features, some of them are more clear than others. Mentioned a couple here. Mm-hmm. Um, remote sources. What's a remote source? Right. Yeah. So I, I suppose in, uh, that's an instance of our kind of internal terminology bleeding into mm-hmm. the uh, marketing copy. But um, uh, our remote source is basically uh, you can you can compile a single garden project out of multiple uh, Git repositories. Okay. And garden will garden will fetch them on demand um, uh, and you know provide some tools to keep them updated. Um, it's analogous to Git submodules, um, okay. but has has some has some benefits uh, in that it is a little bit more garden native. But and we see actually some, some people use Git submodules, some people yeah. just. But but you can also um, uh, you can also have your garden configuration separate from your application code. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, and then you just like this garden module, uh, the resort, the sources are in this repository and then garden will fetch that for you. Okay. Um, Ho- hopefully less mess than uh, Git submodules. <laughs> yeah, we try and, and we're actually working out some, um, some improvements in terms of how we, you know, especially once you have lots of different repositories, um, we've been thinking a lot about how we can facilitate that. And that's exactly, you know, the type of problem that Garden aims to help with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the kind of orchestration between lots of different code repositories and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. configurations and stitching it all together. And on the subject of stitching, so you mentioned here Terraform integration. Yeah. Um, what do you use Terraform for? And is that the only option? Um, can people use other options? So Garden is pluggable. Um, we haven't yet published a plugin SDK. We do have that, um, you know, on kind of tentative roadmap. Um, but for now, we're just kind of working working it out ourselves. And um, and certainly, you know, Garden being open source, people can contribute yeah. plugins. But um, we went with Terraform because it's by some stretch the most popular mm-hmm. choice for mm-hmm. infrastructure uh, automation. And um, and the way that it works, you um, basically uh, you can have a Terraform project in the Garden project root, or you can declare a module um, that has some Terraform stack. And um, the benefit then, and you can then put that in the dependency graph along with everything else that's in your Kubernetes application. So a simple example would be, say you like you know you justifiably don't want to run Postgres in your Kubernetes cluster, yep. which I would yep. gen- generally advise against if you can avoid it, um, except for development. Yep. And what you, what you can then do, um, say, just for the production or the staging environment uh, or both, um, you can have a Terraform module that deploys a Cloud SQL instance or an RDS instance or what, whichever um, cloud provider you're using. And that, the, the outputs from that Terraform stack are then available in templating uh, across all your different other modules. So, okay. so you have, you know, some API services or something that require that database. You can uh, declare the provisioning for the database and then template all the outputs into the rest of your, uh, mm-hmm. in your to your provide that to the Kubernetes services. And obviously, that goes for anything that Terraform supports. Um, we've we, there is an example in a repository where you actually deploy a GKE cluster as part mm. of the garden project from experience. We see less about of people use using that approach, but, um, certainly possible. Um, so basically it's, um, uh, but it kind of speaks to how we, um, how we've designed garden uh, garden actually is sort of unique amongst these Kubernetes dev tools in that it is not tied to the hip to Kubernetes, okay. uh, at, at fundamentally. Yeah. You meant what well, you mentioned, Containers as well. I mean, that's somewhat related, but yeah, that's mm-hmm. where, where else do you, I suppose I cut you off a little bit. First question is why, how, I guess. And secondly, where else do you see it going? <laughs> sure. Um, well, so the, the how is basically we decided not to, uh, make Kubernetes primitives native to Garden necessarily. So we okay. wanted wanted it to be more adaptable to different scenarios. Um, the why is, well, you know, I think I sometimes quip that, you know, Kubernetes is like yesterday's technology tomorrow. Um, it's, uh, you know, it definitely, it, it is a, it, it is a very sensible path from mm-hmm. legacy systems into the cloud because, you know, and it, provides a lot of flexibility, but it also carries a lot of that baggage. Like we're still thinking about ports. We're still thinking about kind of low level networking things. Um, and I imagine like, you know, fast forward, I don't know how many years um, we'll be looking to get off of Kubernetes. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and the last thing I would want to do is to build another tool that you're then going to have to replace and uproot. Yeah. Um, I would rather, you know, whenever, you know, the next evolution happens, and even just somewhere along the way, like, you know, one, one thing that we've uh, been eyeing is maybe having Lambda uh, mm-hmm. as, as one okay. of the supported <clears throat> module types. So you could deploy, I mean, I suppose you can technically do that with Terraform today already, but it's kind of not great in terms of developer experience. But we could do, like directly support Lambda functions um, alongside, you know, your normal Kubernetes resources so you can mix and match. 
like say if you want to have uh, like Cloudflare edge workers, we can fashion a plugin for that. And we're really just waiting for people to ask us to do it. And we are like a fairly small operation. So we have to be conscious with our time. That's all. But, but you know, with an eye, eye to the future, I think this is going to be very important to be able to mix and match yeah. and yet have the same overarching development tooling and automation tooling. And yeah. Not, and not, yeah. yeah. And that, that's, that's the why. I think that's... Uh, it's actually interesting. I mean, now we have definitely on the path of um, hybrid cloud, mm-hmm. but generally using the same tool to connect it all. So yeah. why not hybrid cloud orchestrator? <laughs> right. That's quite complicated, but yeah. <laughs> um, who knows? Maybe Mesos will make a comeback, you know? So, et cetera. And things like yeah. that. Or, or maybe people just want to connect monoliths to each other again. Who knows? Um, sure. <laughs> so just to continue down some of the feature list here, one you say in cluster building, I'm guessing that's just building in the cluster. That's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, pretty yeah. fairly. Yeah. Like yeah. You, but mostly, I mean, you can run a Docker daemon in the cluster, which we, which is quite performant for a small, you know, a single user or a small team, but, Kaneko is is kind of um, uh, our preferred. You have some options there, okay. um, and basically we yeah we stream your we synchronize the sources between your uh, local machine um, and the cluster and run the build from there. Okay, um, and then so this is where the features in Core stop. And is Core open source or is that just free or is there a bit of a Core, core is open source? Yes. Okay. Okay. And then on the enterprise version, you add events and log collection. That seems reasonable. You can't really <laughs> do that in an open source version. Neither should you. Um, secrets management, pretty similar reason. Mm-hmm. Centralized environment management, again, pretty similar. Now, the one here that gets interesting, um, direct integration with VCA, with version control system. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I'm running core, what, what do I do? Does it just mean I have to do it myself or... or yeah, so okay. um, so so Garden Core is basically a CLI tool. Um, okay. You um, you oh, run that from from your developer machine. You run it from CI. Run it from wherever. But you're basically operating it yourself, mm-hmm. and there is no persistent state anywhere. So Garden Enterprise is, um, and it's actually we got the feedback uh, that we shouldn't really have the compare editions thing because they're entirely separate products. Really, it's a completely separate code base. Um, because oh, well, that, that's, actually, that's actually worth mentioning in itself because from the, what you said and from what I read, I think open core, et cetera, et cetera, which is, which is controversial. So, <laughs> so yeah, there's other yeah. reasons to maybe. No, yeah. I think it's worth making that clear uh, in our, in yeah. our copy there, because, um, uh, we, we expressly did not want to go like kind of like dual license sort of a model where we have yeah. kind of a sort of a handicapped version of the same thing. Um, but rather, uh, the enterprise product is this kind of management and governance layer on top. Um, and the way that it works, you basically deploy that um, in a Kubernetes cluster somewhere within your infrastructure. Um, and we felt that was important uh, because most of the companies that we talk to, they have to run things within their own infra. They can't mm-hmm. use a SaaS thing. Um, they mostly like are running like GitHub Enterprise or GitLab yep. uh, uh, in their usually in their VPCs, but in the occasional on-prem, and um, uh, and then basically when you use Garden as you would otherwise normally, uh, it's still configured the same way. Like all you do is add a tiny bit of metadata to your project, and then you do a Garden login. You log into the enterprise instance, and then, then everything that you do is reported back there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, that means Garden has the you know. The latest information about all the workflows that you're running, um, service statuses, test test results, things things of that sort, mm-hmm. and um, the VCS integration basically means instead of you running directly through your CI system, which you can still do, um, you um, basically you get those like uh, garden checks in your in your PR, and we will automatically run whichever workflows you've configured to be triggered on say, pull request open, pull request change, whatever events that you want to act on. Nice. So let's move on to the the company a little bit. Um, So just about three weeks ago, you um, announced (laughs) 3.1, 3.1. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway, um, euros in seed funding and enterprise mm-hmm. goes GA. We've talked a little bit about enterprise. I mean, for a seed round, that's fairly reasonable. Um, let's just go back a step. So how long has the company existed? It started beginning of 2018. Okay. Um, and like early, 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 early on, we got a pre-seed round, um, and that um, included um, a fund based out of here in Berlin called Fly Ventures, and mm-hmm. um, and some smaller ones, System One, uh, Tiny VC, um, and a long list of angel investors, actually. Um, yeah, actually, and there's some quite interesting ones here. Chad Fowler, who who used to live here in Berlin, um, yep. mostly known for um, Wonderlist, <laughs> which is yep. kind of now gone. Um, and Nat Friedman, co-founder of GitHub, which is kind of interesting. And well, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a CEO of GitHub, actually. I don't think. Yeah, he, he wasn't I even, feel like he might he, have been. I can't remember. Um, but also some interesting um, angel investors from companies like Datadog Unity, which is an interesting one, uh, and some more local companies too that people probably won't have heard of. But um, no. yeah, it's, and so so what. What do you think people have seen in, in what they've seen? <laughs> I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah, that was a bad, bad wording. So <laughs> this sort of relatively early days, but you've worked on a, on mm-hmm. a product pretty quickly mm-hmm. um, and a reasonably good seed round from some pretty kind of solid, uh, solid names there. So what do you think people see in Garden that's promising, that shows promise? So I think... I think the key thing is that every, it's a widely recognized problem. Like everything that we've been talking about in terms of, you know, it's a developer experience and a developer productivity and the, 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 just the scale of the problem. Like if, if people are by and large wasting a day plus of every week and developers are not the cheapest labor, um, uh, I think that. Um, and so I think, you know, it immediately catches people's eye, you know, and like Chad Fowler, obviously very technical mm. himself and, um, and Renault CTO of Eventbrite has been experienced this problem hands, you know, hands on themselves. And, um, I don't know. I, I think it kind of helped that I, um, <clears throat> exited a company previously. I think it kind of, you know, meant yeah. that, um, the, the reception was a little bit, you know, uh, quicker, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, and you know, that, you know, it's not just, you know, credentials. It's actually like that experience has been yeah. tremendously useful. Yeah. Um, yeah. your first burnout teaches you a lot, <laughs> little things like that. <laughs> um, um, no, I think the problem is very clear. I think when we started, we had a prototype, we had a notion of what we were doing and actually the whole, the, the design and the architecture is held up through this whole time. Um, and then, the challenge that has followed is to figure out like, who who are we selling to? Like because you know this is a very big problem space. We're not going to solve all of it. So what are we going to focus on? Uh, where do we focus our time? This you know never ending pursuit of product market fit mm. is is what has followed alongside just the technical challenges of getting this right. Um, but I think, yeah, um, people very early on picked up that, yeah, this is a problem worth solving. No question there. The market is there for sure. Um, the question that, you know, we're always continuously aiming to answer is, is our approach the right, right approach? Um, are we the team to do it? And are we focusing in the right way? Hmm. Um, and that's, that's the challenge. With regards to focus, I'd just like to talk a little bit about on the open source side because I'm just digging around your GitHub mm-hmm. and I find some quite nice things like you have homebrew packages. I go around contributing mm-hmm. homebrew packages for so many things. <laughs> oh, yeah? Because <laughs> I want them. <laughs> it's quite nice to see. Um, yeah. And a lot of other uh, quite positive things I see through the way you, your engineers commit and the commit messages and, and things like that. Um, so you mentioned that people can write plugins. How, how is, do you have kind of a, a way of doing that or is it still a little bit, um, we're not really pushing, pushing for the, okay. we're not really pushing for the community to contribute those because, yeah. um, um, we do those internally. Mostly we, we've had people contribute to the plugins that we already mm-hmm. have. Okay. Um, but we decided, um, 
we, you know, we had the early ambition to have an open plug in SDK. Um, and then, you know, we just decided, uh, <laughs> as, as we kind of picked that, that problem apart, we didn't want to make, um, you know, a plug in SDK and then, you know, put ourselves in a corner with respect to the implementation. So we're letting it mature a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, slowly peeling things out of the core, uh, core code base. Um, and then the time will come where it will, will be much more, much easier to build plugins. Yeah. But in the meantime, we're also adding more just capabilities to the framework itself. So that it's also from feedback. Um, um, lots of our users, these, uh, you know, tend to be kind of on a, the, the more advanced users tend to be on the kind of the, I hate to use the term DevOps engineer, but, you know, uh, but uh, that is kind of, you know, what I'm describing. Yeah. Um, people who are working on automation and infrastructure managing pipelines. And they really just want to be able to weave their own scripts and not have to actually write TypeScript, which is a slightly unusual choice as well. Um, so, you know, I think we're rather just building features for them to be able to extend within their own local context as yeah. opposed to contribute like, you know, some somewhat elaborate plugin for to support AWS Lambda or something. Well, that explains why you have uh, two Microsoft employees interested. Then. <laughs> it's time to go. That was, oh, that yeah, was yeah, a joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so you've talked quite a bit there about focus, and that was actually kind of leading into my question around the open source mm-hmm. thing. But looking into the future, what's on the mm-hmm. roadmap for the next six months or so? So we've been um, we've been basically focusing a lot on getting um, getting the enterprise product into the uh, hands mm-hmm. of the first few users. Um, and uh, yeah, since we announced it, and we've we, you know we had people kicking the tires uh, as it were um, until we did the announcement just some weeks ago. Um, so that's a big part of what we're what we're focusing on. That said, it's not to say that we're abandoning the open source side because those two those are two products that are tightly intertwined, and one supports the other. Um, so you know. I, in my very limited spare time for development, um, sometimes contribute on the, on the open core. Um, and what we're looking to do with the commercial product is to um, have it collect and present a lot of, lot more information than it does today. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking into like, what would be useful analytics for developers to have in a platform yeah. like that. Okay. Um, like understanding, especially for a large project, it's really good to see which tests are failing the most, uh, which are slowing down pipelines, uh, which builds could be optimized, things of that sort. We're also um, focusing a bit on really just enabling features because a lot of the times it's like one of these things that we learn uh, as we go because it's easy to think from, you know, from a startup's perspective, you just want the tools and you could just yeah tell your team to use them. Um, but for larger companies, um, like some of the very big U.S. companies that we're talking to um, in what I'm sure will be a long sales process, um, um, and which is fine, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's complicated, but they have to think so much about this whole governance aspect and, yep. you know, uh, uh, how do you actually provision accounts for everybody? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you need, yeah. it needs to be integrated with SSO. It needs to be, yeah. you need to have like <laughs> tightly defined roles. Who's, who's allowed to deploy to this environment and not that yeah. environment. Um, so we're kind of, you know, scrappy startups tend to overlook in the first place. Cause that's the thing. So, um, yeah. that's why it's, you know, move we're, quickly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I think, you know, like if you f- fast forward, maybe, you know, the through, through next year, um, it's, it's, um, we have so many ideas and things that we want to do. And this space is, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for improvement, but, um, for now, Key thing is to make sure that a um, um, powerful tool like Garden can be rolled out for a large organization yeah. in a yeah. re- reliable, uh, you know, uh, compliance policy friendly sort of a way. Yeah. Um, there's also security features. I think we're so, you know, these days in enterprise land, it's all about shifting left. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, um, and, and, and that is actually something that we're really behind and, um, we want to do some more integrations with security software. So for example, one 
very tedious uh, part of working at a large organization is if you're if you're working on your code, you think you're done, you push it, it's even merged. Um, and then sometime later, a security, you know, pro- process finds some problem with it. And it turns out like you're yeah. just not, not allowed to use that base image or you're not yeah. allowed to yeah. run that piece of yeah. software. Yeah. And you want to discover, <laughs> you want to discover these things very early in the process. So integrating, yeah. you know, vulnerability scanners, um, we already have, um, uh, uh, plug in for a tool called ConfTest where you can apply policies, um, uh, like OPA style policies. Yep. Um, and then you know very early in the process whether you're breaking some of those policies or you've, you're introducing vulnerabilities. Um, so that's part of, part, of the, uh, part of what we're emphasizing over the next six months as well. That was my interview with John Edvald of Garden. Okay, now a few updates from me. So what's new from me? Uh, yeah, first up, I did a solo adventure session last Friday on Quill, a letter-writing roleplay game. Uh, sounds kind of weird, but actually these work quite well because they're short and kind of suit maybe the format a bit better. And my newsletter change plans took a, an unexpected turn because I was using Review and was thinking of switching away from it because... The cost versus what I was getting out of the newsletter wasn't worth it. And then they announced they just got bought out by Twitter and have made it free. So (laughs) I may continue using it. I'm not sure yet. But the other topic newsletters that you can actually start subscribing to up on my newsletters tab up here. Um, I'm still testing, but I'm very nearly ready to go. And you can see some of the specific um, topics here. Uh, Gaming, ethics and language. They're coming very soon. Dexpose has been taking a slight break because I'm actually about to relaunch that with uh, splitting it out into two different streams, actually, interestingly. Um, So watch out for that soon. Possibly the first of those will be starting uh, next Monday, Monday the 1st of February, actually, at, I think, 15.30 Central European time. So keep an eye out for that, and it will be slightly different. And then we're continuing from there, actually splitting out into two new streams. Um, I think that's about all from a kind of broad... Oh, yes, if you uh, are thinking of attending FOSDEM, quote-unquote attending FOSDEM this year, then I am co-organizing the Tool the Docs dev room again. We'll be running on Sunday afternoon, Sunday the 7th afternoon. I've bought a big stash of Belgian beers, so you can join us for the socials before and afterwards, and we can cheers each other across the internet. Yeah, <laughs> do what you can right now, I suppose. Um, and that is about all for now. I'm actually going to have a lot of new things to announce very soon. I'm just getting slots in calendars. So some more updates very, very soon. Kind of in timing with what I mentioned earlier about the week this week. Also changing formats a little bit. So watch this space. But until then, if you have been, thank you very, very much for watching or listening or reading And um, I will see you next time.